we can present children with a wide array of stories about history. And that really just comes from changing who's in power, who's making the decisions about what gets published and what gets produced. And not thinking that there's only a market for stories of, of white men, of exceptional Americans, of pioneer history. Hello and welcome to Indoor Voices. I'm Kathleen Collins, librarian at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. The voice you just heard belongs to Molly Rosner, Director of Education Programs at the LaGuardia and Wagner Archives, and the author of Playing with History, American Identities and Children's Consumer Culture, published by Rutgers University Press in May 2021. Playing with History is a series of case studies from five eras of the 20th century in which Molly's chosen significant and fascinating cultural artifacts to illustrate how commercial industries who claim to have education as their goal have presented quite limited views of US history and how these products have influenced American identity. To find out more about Molly and her work and to see a clip of a bizarre film made by the Ford Motor Company, visit us at indoorvoicespodcast.com. Thank you for listening and please enjoy this conversation with Molly Rosner. In your introduction, you acknowledge the people who've influenced you and who set you on the path to studying the impact of and messaging in children's books, toys, dolls, and theme parks. And you talk about the specific activities of your grandmother, your father, and then you came upon the scholars who critically examined cultural artifacts and the objects of everyday life. So in your introduction, you do a great answer to the question, how did you come to write this book? And and I just want to encourage listeners to read this wonderful book. Um, so I'm not going to start with that question. What I would like to start by asking you is about your research and writing process. I'm curious to know, since this book is a collection of case studies from different eras in the 20th century, how did you come to this method as a way of presenting your research? Like, was it clear from the start that you would focus on these five artifacts or did the idea come later? The first thing I wrote that ended up in this book was actually the last chapter on American Girl Dolls. And I didn't intend for it to be part of my dissertation. It wasn't what I went to graduate school to study. I went to my PhD program thinking I would work more on New York City history, um, topics on housing. And uh, obviously that's not where I went, but it was uh, early on in graduate school that I came across the idea of nostalgia as a counterpoint, I guess, to history and how we think about the past. And I got really excited about this idea. It had never occurred to me how, how, these, um, how nostalgia and history overlap and also contradict each other or influence each other. So I started following that just based on my own childhood interest in um, American Girl Dolls. And its influence on my interest in history more generally. As I started to continue on this path of looking at children's consumer culture, I knew that I didn't want to write, a, I couldn't write a comprehensive history of all, you know, toys and dolls that talk about American identity. So I really focused in on amusements that focus on history as a, a, the crux of American identity. So 
you know, conversations with people often were, would end with, oh, have you, are you going to talk about Barbie? Are you going to talk about Legos? Are you going to, you know, everybody's got a lot of ideas that are fantastic, but I needed to really curtail it to be, I'm not just looking at um, all the jobs Barbie has had, but the specific instances where dolls were trying to tell a story to children about um, the past. And I found that with all of these consumer items, because they were about childhood or aimed towards children, they were laden with all these kind of romanticized ideas about youth and about progress. So while I did case studies, there were really these connecting threads. And I definitely didn't set out to write case studies, but I was writing this, what would become my dissertation and then my book in papers for class. And I was following the leads of things I came across. So I found this strange book from the 1940s that was a chronological story of American history through dolls. And it was really this one woman's perception of what made an American and what made dolls valuable. And really these dolls were stand-ins for what made women valuable, what made America special and exceptional, or finding a video made by the Ford Motor Company. Why, why in the world is this man of industry talking about children's toys and romanticizing the idea of the, the child in her bedroom playing with dolls? It just seemed to me that there, there are very few cases where there was a consumer item for children about history that wasn't also just about the nostalgia of childhood. Both history and childhood were being romanticized in this process. So I really wanted to kind of look at the tension in that. That's great. Uh, that That's so interesting, the nostalgia thread, because it really explains, it's really a theme throughout the book. And your answer to, you know, how you came to choose these artifacts explains how the book is so full of stuff that I just had never heard of before. I mean, just fascinating <laughs> facts and, you know, just not your run of the mill kind of thing that people would expect to be, if they just saw the title of their book, they'd be like, oh yeah, she's gonna talk about Barbies and Legos. It's not that at all. It's these other really interesting things. So in, in your first chapter, where you talk about the rise of the American toy industry, you start presenting themes that repeat throughout the book, including the mercenary goals of toy makers over the educational ones and who's considered a valuable target consumer. And you know, right from the start, you, you just knocked me out with these amazing historical facts. And you already mentioned this Ford Motor Company film. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and its significance in the in the context of your larger study? Sure. I, I'm sure a lot of people don't know that this thing exists. So it's available through the Library of Congress. And it's one of a series of films that Ford made early in the 20th century. So it's black and white silent film. But this is one of the strangest genre-defying films <laughs> I've ever seen. And I guess I included it because it gets at so many of the themes that I was interested in talking about. So here we have this giant in car making who changed assembly line production forever. Looking at the whimsical I'm trying to remember how, how it was phrased. It's like the whimsy and imagination of childhood. And it's a mixture of 
footage from factories where people are assembling dolls and pianos and toy dogs and things like that. And it really zooms in on the laborer as they're doing a repetitive motion, but we see one person, we don't see a whole line of people doing it and they smile at the camera. And it gives you this feeling that these objects were made with such care and it's really artisanal. And it's, I mean, there's a lot One to back up one thing I found was that the themes of handmade artistry and care and an eye towards education, these are the same selling points people use today for toys a century later. And in a way, very little has changed despite the technological advances we've made. So back to this film, uh, we see the laborer making these beautiful items for the child that are now more widely accessible because they're made in an American factory with you know happy workers. And then we go to the child's room and the child is of course a small white blonde girl. There's a stop a clay, like a stop motion <laughs> a video of the dolls, one doll bathing the baby doll and them dressing up at the vanity and some circus animals come out and they do a little performance and then they all go back into the toy chest. And then the little girl wakes up and she's yawning in her bed and it was all a dream. It was all fantasy made possible by these toys that came from the board motor company. And I just, I couldn't get my head around why this film got made. It, you know, it wasn't selling specific toys, but it really was selling this idea of industry and factory being beneficial to children and being something that could heighten imagination and, and serve the American child. So I really recommend you watch it. It's the link on the, on the blog page. So everyone can watch it. It sounds <laughs> creepy and I can't wait to watch yes. it. <laughs> well, that is, there, there is always the uncanny creepiness of talking about dolls that come to life. Um, so I didn't even get into that in my book, but it's, uh, it could be a, a rich counter history to what I'm talking about. Chucky dolls and the, the, <laughs> <laughs> the Freudian, I, you know, issues behind realistic human objects. <laughs> so with that example, we begin to see the celebration of manufacturing and teaching kids and their parents how to be excited and happy about buying these things and cherishing the, the way in which they're made, which is a little bit off the mark from what, what the real story is. Yeah, I, I think part of this was a lot of that early toy marketing was really teaching the American populace, how to be a consumer, how children could be consumers and how that was part of their civic duty as American kids, vowing to buy American-made toys from the um, American laborer. I mean, this was inculcated from the, from the start of the, the toy industry. So it was imported objects from Germany that really were these artisanal um, handmade dolls, mostly, that wealthy children could access, but there was this democratizing, I guess, of access to toys with the advent of assembly line production and children suddenly could buy, or they couldn't, their parents could buy toys that were previously unavailable or when they previously had to be made for them specifically by a, a farmer, a blacksmith, someone who knew the child and made them a specific toy. So there was a big learning curve of how to be a consumer and that this was a really big part of your identity and it 
it made you a, a true American kid. <laughs> yeah, and that's, I mean, yet another thing that people are being sold is this idea, this democratic idea. It's available to everyone. And not only forget about talking about maybe the cost of such items, but who, as we'll come to see, who is represented in these toys and artifacts. And so speaking of dolls, in your second chapter, you focus on, it's called Dolling Up History, 1930s Antique Dolls and the Clark Doll Study. And you state at the end of this chapter, American history was forever changed by dolls. And, and that's really not an exaggeration. Could you elaborate a little bit on the famous, people don't know about it, the Clark Doll Studies? And, you know, get to the point which was astounding to me is that they played a role in the Brown v. Board Supreme Court case. This is a really great example of how children's, children's worlds and their consumer items are not this apolitical space of just joy and leisure, but that it's a disservice to, to only see it that way when there's multiple specific instances where children's toys or dolls have impacted um, import-export laws and tariff laws and education agendas and, of course, Brown v. Board of Ed. So I put the Clark study in the chapter with this, I'll call them Mrs. Lewis's dolls, who were these American history-oriented dolls from her collection. She was the founder of the American Doll Collecting Society. It's now like the American Doll Federation, I believe it's called. So Mrs. Lewis was presenting these dolls as her hobby, her collecting, and, and that there were this, this specialty she had that could teach American history and could educate the masses through her dolls. But there's this really stark and obvious, to modern eyes, omission of non-white dolls, of non-wealthy dolls. And collecting in itself was really valuing um, the fancier materials, the the dolls that had been owned by royalty. So there was this depiction of American history as somewhat like the old world European model. I wanted to juxtapose the Clark study with that because it really highlights the dangers of positing an all white, all wealthy American history. Because in this case, the dolls that the Kenneth and Mimi Clark used illuminated the incredibly powerful effect that segregation was having on young people. So they were psychologists and they used uh, identical baby dolls that were, they were the same in every way except their race uh, or their color. So black or white dolls. And they asked children things about which doll they thought was more beautiful and why. And it just really illustrated that children had internalized the language of segregation and internalize the ideas that white was beautiful, black was ugly. And this ended up being a powerful way to illustrate to the Supreme Court the um, horrific effects of segregation. But I do think that there's something really powerful about, while this was a case about education, it was not a mistake that children are used here as an argument because so often children are used to goad people into action or to say they're the most vulnerable population, we need to protect them. And even in those cases, it's so often only the white children that are used in those examples. So 
there had been previous studies about children's interpretation of race at, as young as, you know, two years old and with using drawings and photographs. And it was really, it was really dolls that were able to drive home the point that children were being negatively affected by racism and by segregation. Dolls were something they could, the children could express their feelings with, that they weren't looking at real people with all of the different variables, I suppose, that real people bring. And if you're comparing photographs or there was a kind of standardization allowed by the dolls and that really isolated race as the determining factor to whether a child identified it as beautiful or, or wanted or loving. And so in that way, the doll was really a tool that changed the course of history. And then you move on to, in your next case study, this chapter about books, the, you, you focus on the orange and the landmark history books during the Cold War. This was the most eye-opening chapter for me. You know, each of your case studies contains multitudes, but from this one, I was astounded to learn so much about publishing history and the evolution of juvenile criminal justice theories and policies. I mean, there's so much in here. Could you talk about, because I think this is fascinating too, who were the authors of these books in general and who was guiding the content of them? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, the Orange and Landmark books are very different in themselves, but they have this kind of cultural weight that I found among kind of older baby boomers that these were books marketed directly to them, that these were special because they were collectible. Again, that idea of kind of collecting history and having all of your orange books lined up on the bookshelf or having all of the, the newly published um, landmark books. But even within this kind of I use these two examples to show both the similarities in the stories of American history that are being told in the 1950s, but also that public publishers and authors were, were diverging in these small but significant ways. Landmark books were published by Random House, a New York publishing house, that was trying to do something kind of radical, that there was a hole in literature about American history for kids um, that was accessible and um, quote-unquote factual. And it's not that these were inaccurate. The books themselves tell, tell you a lot about the past. But what I've come to find is that the approach to history is already faulty when we approach it as uh, heroic individuals and really focusing on who are the brave men and the um, sometimes brave women <laughs> who shaped our past. And it's really speaking to this idea of the American individual who's able to make change. A tremendous number of the books are focused on war and battles and the kind of history that we think of a very specific subset of people being interested in where they've memorized, you know, the generals at all of the civil war battles. But what is that really telling us? What is that telling us about the past? And the Orange books were published in Indianapolis and had a kind of morality imbued into all of their stories, these kind of Midwestern sensibility of kindness and bravery and these characteristics that really, I mean, I think flatten, flatten what a person is. 
but both books are doing a sim the similar work of focusing on specific Americans, often presidents, often the qualities of their childhood or their backgrounds that made them heroic, which I find problematic because stories do need protagonists. They need heroes. I understand that. But as long as the the powers that be, you asked who's doing the publishing, you know, as long as it's not a diverse group of people and it's only white men deciding who, what are the important factors in history, these stories are not going to, not going to educate American children in a way that creates engaged citizens that feel empowered if they're not part of that demographic group. So the people writing the orange books were often women and librarians who knew a lot and who knew how to do research and really did use archival sources for their books. So that that's pretty amazing. This was treating history very seriously. And I don't want to sound, you know, smug, like I can look back and say, here's all the things wrong with this interpretation of history. I have never written a children's book. It's easy to critique, but these were incredibly popular. So it's important for understanding how a huge segment of children, the largest child generation, you know, the baby boom generation were being influenced and being what stories they were being exposed to that we see then in television shows and on TV and in old Westerns, there's ripple effect. The, the books are reflecting other media and the media are reflecting the books. And one thing I want to make sure I'm getting at is that children, and that is really hard to find in the archival record, but children are not just passive receptors for these messages. They're interpreting them, they're reacting to them, and maybe we don't have a lot of um, documents to show that, but there's no doubt it was happening. There was one letter I refer to in the book that was written to the publisher, to Random House, from a little girl saying, you wrote about pilots in World War II, I believe. It was something about Air Force pilots. And she said, are there, I want to be a pilot. Are, have there ever been any female Air Force pilots? Or will you write a book about that? Children were making connections and trying to find their heroes amongst these books. And these 1950s descriptions of the past were not just taken and accepted when we see, you know, 10 years later uh, in the 1960s, all of the social movements that, that Kids who had been reading these books uh, were rejecting this, this story of American history. There was an identified consumer base, and then there's kind of a tongue-in-cheek memory of these books that they were they were fun, they were special, they weren't, they weren't the end-all be-all for how you understood American identity. And none of these case studies are. No single story or doll or amusement park visit is going to be what shapes your entire worldview. It's a series of small messages you receive from your family, from school, from reading. But taken together, we can see how powerful, powerful these ideas were and how ubiquitous it seemed. So when we think today about, oh, look how far we've come, it really, it brings that into question. We need to really take the time to think about who's in charge of the stories we're telling our children and um, how, how we can diversify and enhance them and not simply do things like ban books or reject critical race theory. <laughs> I won't go all the way into that right now, but. Um, yeah, but it's definitely connected. And your comment about children not being passive consumers is, uh, is really important because if you, if anybody 
thinks about the books that they engaged with as young children, you engage with them in such an intimate way for such a long period of time. You know, you sort of obsess about your childhood books. And I think of that little girl who's reading these books about male pilots. <laughs> the, the effect that having read a book about a female pilot could have had on her life. I mean, it makes me want to cry, you know? And, and there's a line, I, I want to find it. Um, and it's about how a strong, strong pilgrim woman knew that her big, strong husband was always right. That was literally the opening. I'm going to find it for you. But to read that and to have these books be quote unquote nonfiction, it's a really powerful way of labeling them. So instead of this being like magical unicorns and ponies and where can you put your imagination, this is being told to children as absolute fact drawn from the archives and it doesn't allow for a lot of interpretation. Ah, she was a pioneer woman and pioneer women always swallowed their tears. Besides, she knew that her big husband was always right. <laughs> This is a woman living on the frontier, and I have a feeling she was a little stronger than uh, swallowing her tears and yes. listening to her husband. There's a lot to be said for attempts to teach children history and to, to do it in a thoughtful way, but there's just such an insidious presence of bigotry and prejudice and sexism across all of these case studies, and the case studies felt like a way to to show how it's in all these different facets of American play and leisure. It's, I didn't want to just look at books or just be the doll lady. <laughs> we were creating entire environments that, that people grew up in with these exact, these messages repeated over and over and over again. Another thing you, you made me think of with this chapter on the beginnings of the, the Random House project is how so many of these projects in your case studies started out with the very best of intentions and some of them quite progressive you know the random house being one example and they went and took a wrong turn somewhere you know something happened and then that brings me to kind of the perfect example of this which is freedom land usa which you talk about as your fourth case study again i think i've heard of freedom land but i cannot believe how literally buried it is in U.S. history. It's the site of the current co-op city in the Bronx, this doomed theme park called Freedom Land, which, you know, if you just told somebody what it was without any bias or anything, it sounds really cool. What a cool idea. But it failed so miserably, really. And, and among the other problems it had, it demonstrated the superficial, nostalgic, greatest hits ethos and like many of the things you talk about, lacked a continuous contextualized narrative. Critique similar to what you found with the American Girl Doll Project, which comes in your last chapter. What I come away with from reading your book is that it seems difficult to impossible to express evolving context in any kind of nuanced way when you're making things for children. The ideas are almost doomed to be flattened and to churn out stereotypes of eras, groups of people, national identities. Am I right about that? Is it is it because we're marketing to children or is it is it just something else? Your first question about Freedom Land, what I find so fascinating about this case study. So just for context, it's a American history themed 
amusement park that was in the Bronx for four years, but it was so intensely planned, so promoted, so expensive to build that you would think you would have heard of it today, but then it was completely raised to the ground, completely erased from the city's landscape immediately to make way for Co-op City, which is the largest residential housing complex in the United States. So it's really this hidden history about a very big part of New York City. And it's so laughable today. And it's also kind of a deeply sad story. But the theory today is that it was built purely to prove that the land in the Bronx was buildable, that it was that this marshland could sustain development and could have buildings of at least three stories last for a certain amount of time. I understand that that might be part of the explanation for why Freedom Land was built, but I can't understand why so much would be invested in this American history theme if that was it, if that was really just what it was there for, they could have built any roller coasters, any set of stores to to be on that land. But they built a space that was shaped in the outline of the continental United States. And that told that you could walk through from 1880s New York. So we're in New York City, but we're romanticizing a different era of the city when um, I guess life was better, which is problematic in itself. We're walking from 1880s New York to Chicago, right before the Chicago fire. We're also framing all of these places. We go to San Francisco, which is the big attraction in the San Francisco part of the park was the earthquake of 1906. So we are really focused on disaster, civil war battles in the South. Like I said, the Chicago fire, these are really controlled and recreated disasters in American history and and violence. Violence reused for fun and for entertainment. And so this park, it cost millions and millions of dollars to build. There were costumed employees all over the place. There were an incredible number, a long list of corporate sponsors who ran the restaurants or had souvenir shops or kind of took on historic identities to to be the, the store that was in that area of the park. And it did capture the imagination of many people, but it also kind of hit at a weird time in American history where it wasn't sticking the way the landmarks books were in the 40s and 50s. Now we're in the early 1960s. And this idea of a place called Freedom Land that was so controlled and so rejecting of all of the ideas of freedom that were going around in the rest of the world, but it's this kind of cringy, yeah, cringy interpretation of America. Yes, that's the perfect word for it. <laughs> cringy at best and and dangerous at worst. And it was primarily accessible by car. This is a suburban attraction, even though it said we're only 30 minutes from Times Square. And it was specifically touted as an anti-Coney Island space. It wasn't just a entertainment place for the masses. It was a family-friendly education-oriented place, even though it was an entertainment center. And over the course of its lifespan, it really focused on the entertainment part and got less and less historically accurate, less and less true to the theme of American history. Soon there's like Roman gladiator battles and medieval knights. And, you know, it was just a hodgepodge of every kind of action hero you could come up with from from world history. So it's this very sad story in a way that I just couldn't believe I had never heard of living in New York my whole life. Um, and so many people haven't heard of. And its use of history as an, a, a tool to make, pro- I mean, one thing that your question is really getting at is 
one of the issues in facing all of these case studies is that they're, these are not curricula for schools. These are not specifically didactic DOE approved history lessons. These are toys and amusements. And they are, the bottom line is they are profit, for-profit institutions. They are taking advantage of the marketplace. They they are trying to sell, um, sell tickets, sell books, sell dolls. And there's an inherent conflict in, in, in that when you're you are trying to grab an audience because you're educational, but give, make them pay for that access to the American past. And literally in the case of Freedom Land, you are paying to get into this country, this Freedom Land country that they've created. So it's this world to me that's just full of contradictions and then isn't visible anymore. It was completely you know, just disappear. It was disappeared. And that also seems purposeful. All of these things seem very intentional, even if it flopped and it failed and um, nobody wants to take any kind of responsibility or credit for it. There's a lot that it had in common with Disneyland, which is going strong. So it's, it wasn't inevitably going to fail. So I have trouble figuring out how we can't, we can't write it off as just a ploy for, for builders. And we can't dismiss it as this far-fetched idea that was always going to fail. It was pretty shocking how dramatically it failed and how quickly it went bankrupt. So I just found that example, yeah, incredibly, incredibly interesting. And actually, let me let me read this little bit, um, which I think gets to that so well. Uh, okay, so this comes in the chapter about the American Girl doll and, you know, the problem in, inherent in that project. Um, you, you write, authors need to find a way for the reader to relate to people in the past while still communicating that people in different historical moments might have thought, interpreted, and even felt differently than a modern reader. The very format of the American Girl books homogenizes not only the eras, but also the characters in ways that sometimes erase differences between historical eras. So that's just an example. Maybe you could play off of that part in addressing the idea of just how difficult it is to present things. As you say, in, it, it sort of has to be simple so everybody will understand and buy this thing, but it, it then necessarily erases some of the factual, more nuanced situations. This is an interesting question that I can't claim to have figured out the the keys to success in this. But one thing I can kind of speak to having become a parent since this book came out is that the books that try too hard to hit you over the head with a moral or a, a lesson and a way of being often, to me, feel the least successful. They're not the books I want to read to my son. And Yes, I'm only in the stage of reading like board books that are, you know, one sentence per page, but I still come across, I, you know, I've tried reading some of these books that are little trailblazers and, you know, here are the heroes of American history. And I myself find that I don't want to read them to my five month old because there's no story. And I want a story for my own sake, as I read these books over and over and over again. (laughs) So I find that The books where race, sexuality, class are just a small piece of a more engaging narrative are more successful to me in terms of wanting to read them, which, you know, the parents are making the decisions in a lot of these cases. So we want to create 
things that are still amusing, that are still entertaining and not have this idea that nonfiction or accurate history is what's going to change the hearts and minds of young people. It's really about respecting young people to understand and interpret and be able to grasp many points of view, be able to understand cultures and worlds that they haven't been exposed to personally, but maybe they are through the world of books. So I think that has to be at the core of it, that yes, we do need to simplify certain narratives. Maybe we're not going to get into the infighting of the factions of the civil rights movement, but we can present children with a wide array of stories about history. And that really just comes from changing who's in power, who's making the decisions about what gets published and what gets produced. And not thinking that there's only a market for stories of of white men, of exceptional Americans, of pioneer history. So that's the closest I've got to to any kind of advice or solution to these issues. You answered something I was very curious about, which is how you address or think about all of this information now that you are a parent and how all of the information is, is, has taken up so much space in your brain for so long. And now it's, it's a real thing, you know, you buying things or thinking about buying things for your son and for friends and family, giving him gifts. I'm wondering just if there's sort of a hyper awareness or hypersensitivity or something people know about your research. Are they thinking, is this okay, Molly? Is this, is this one okay? <laughs> I, Certainly can't claim to be more conscientious than the average parent who everyone's trying their best to to introduce their young ones to fair and just visions of the world. I think about it, but it, it does hang over me quite a bit. And I've realized partly as a mom, you have to trust things that are out of your power quite a bit. And that can be that the the media coming into your home is not always in, in your power, in your control. So your job is to help your little one think critically about it. I I don't want to like sound pedantic, but like to talk about it, ask questions and question what they're presented with. So the danger comes from just accepting passively anything I would say. I want him to be better than I am. And I want him to know that I don't have all the answers. So there's a lot of examples of of the government, of the school system failing children and failing, failing at respecting their audience in this way. And my hope is really just that I can admit when I'm not familiar with something and, and do my best to, to not recreate or reproduce my own inherent bias or prejudice. And then, you know, one thing that I think about so often is just how I I do talk about my grandmother in the beginning of this book, but my grandparents were such a huge influence on my life. And my grandfather with his thick Hungarian accent and his very unique take on the world, he's not around for my son anymore to learn from. And I have this question of how do I, how do I introduce him to his own family past, his own family history in a way that is engaging, that gives him a sense of identity that is maybe apart and unique from the kind of mass story of what a young New York City boy in 
2021 is. Yeah, I mean, I think all of these case studies are inevitably interacting with our own kind of family myths and family legends and beliefs that people want to pass on. And it's really about finding the wiggle room to tell conflicting even stories to young people, because I think they can handle it. Well, that, that seems like a good place for us to wrap it up, thinking about hope and the next generation. And hopefully we, we will learn to deal with things in a more rational way than we have in the past. Anything that you want to mention before we close? One thing that becomes clear for each of the case studies is that these books or dolls or theme parks tell us a lot more about the time period in which they were created than they do about the history that they're ostensibly about. So they show the values and priorities of writers in the 1950s more than that of cowboys and Civil War generals uh, decades earlier. One of the challenges with the book was critiquing items that were being marketed and being sold as opposed to being given away for free or as propaganda on television. There's limitations embedded in that. And there's a lot to criticize about money being the end goal of these so-called educational amusements. But there also is freedom in, in that to create new stories and to come up with alternate visions of, of our past so I don't want to come off as completely dismissing these items because these are, I mean, for me with American Girl, these are the items that really stick with you and they they last and they have an impact. So I can say I remember those books better than whatever history lesson I was learning in fourth grade. So I don't want it to come off as too pessimistic or too um, hypercritical of things that are being produced for our children. It's really just about looking at the stories that have held fast throughout all of these different media and all of these different time periods. It's important to see that these are ingrained in children's worlds and that there's more possibilities out there. I really do think you were successful at doing that. You didn't come off pessimistic. You did a great job of sharing the importance and the potential of all of these projects. Thank you so much for you know all this important research, which I think many scholars could look at this and take off from any one of the little fascinating nuggets that you stuck in there and just do a whole dissertation on something like where where is the dissertation on freedom land alone you know or yeah, the I, <laughs> for a while I actually thought maybe the whole dissertation would become freedom land the 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 issue with that was really the availability of archival documents about it just a quick anecdote is um, recently in the news a couple of people sent me this article about the founder of the American Girl Company Pleasant Roland so she she started as the Pleasant Company which speaks volumes about her interpretation <laughs> of history yeah. um, but she bought enormous amounts of land in this small town in upstate New York and has really re rebuilt it in her vision of a quaint small town and Lots of people are sending this to me and we're seeing this kind of, it's like very Westworldy feeling to me. It's this reimagining of the past to be perfect. <laughs> and she did amazing work starting this company that told the story of American history through the eyes of young girls. That's that in itself is quite huge. 
And now it's transferred into kind of the adult world. And so, and people are reacting and the nostalgia that was always part of their marketing plan and always part of the stories about American history is really, really being put at the forefront. You know, it's it's not under the guise of education anymore. It's like, she's just really into this nostalgic look at the past and she has the money now to reinvent a town. So I think that there are these places that it pops up. And if we're aware of this kind of inherent conflict about how we talk about American history, then we can identify it more clearly. And you're right. It keep, I mean, I keep finding little tangents that I could have gone on that I would, that would be an entire book in themselves. I appreciate you saying that. Well, the book is so, so hyper relevant at this moment as, you know, American history to many of our surprises (laughs) is a, is a hot topic. So the timing of this book is, is just great. And I really think a lot of people can get a, a lot out of it. So I strongly recommend it to everybody. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I agree. I just want to say we didn't quite get at this, but this idea that we're always progressing in a linear fashion, that's one of the more dangerous um, messages that are being put in all of these examples. And right. if we just become com- complacent, oh, we've addressed racism, we've talked about sexism, so we can't be that anymore. That's where these issues are coming up. And it's it's really scary to see. Yeah. And you do a very good job of talking about that challenge throughout too, about, you know, not acknowledging the the dips and valleys and the progress and the backward motion and everything in the book. So it's just in, in a really digestible amount of size uh, of this book, you pack in so, so much and it's a really wonderful read. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for your time, Molly. Sure. Thanks again. Thank